Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We are, as most of our listeners know, studying the Gospel of John on a chapter-by-chapter, verse-by-verse, and even word-by-word basis. We have come to what is called the Upper Room Discourse, an extended section where Christ is preparing his apostles for his crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. In other words, his departure. Something that they were not well prepared for in in their hearts and in their minds, though they had been thoroughly prepared by the instruction of Christ over three years. But Christ is now giving final instructions that will strengthen their ability to weather, you might say, the storm of his departure and to to be productive members of the team that will establish the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ upon the earth, extending it to the ends of the world. But obviously a great transformation is going to have to take place before they're going to be able to be the pillars of the church. They are timid, they are shallow in much of their spiritual understanding, they are fearful, but all that is going to change. It surely is going to change after the resurrection of Christ, which will give them great boldness, and after the impartation of a great measure of the power of the Holy Spirit, which yet awaits the day of Pentecost. But Christ is also teaching them some of the things that if they will receive his teaching, which they will eventually, maybe not immediately receive all of it and receive all the benefits of it immediately, but they will receive it all eventually, and it will strengthen them. And so we view the Upper Room Discourse in that light. This is Christ's preparation for the departure of his disciples, or rather, his, the, his departure from his disciples. And we have settled down for quite a, an extended ex- exploration of the, the vine and the vine dresser parable, analogy, teaching in John chapter 15. And on the broadcast last week, we took up the question, what are the results of abiding? Because that's, in some ways, the main theme of this whole section. You must abide in me. Like the vine, must be joined, 
maybe I should back up there, like the, like the branch, branch or branches must be joined to the vine continually and maintain that healthy relationship of being joined to the vine and receiving the nourishment which comes from the vine into the branches. So you must abide, that is, remain spiritually and energetically connected with me or you will not be able to accomplish anything. And that's the force. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. In past broadcast, we have taken up the question, what does it mean to abide in Christ? And I hope that has been sufficiently explored. And now, starting on the broadcast last week, we have taken up a second question, which is, what are the results of abiding? If we do abide, what will be the result? At least some of them. And we covered two, and we'll continue with some others on the broadcast today. Thank you for joining me on this Sunday, February 5. And thank you for making this possible by supporting us financially. For without your financial help, we could not continue this ministry. All right, what are the results of abiding in Christ? We must abide. Abide in me, and I in you. It's a two-way thing. It's a, it's a reciprocal relationship. You abide in me, I abide in you. You are joined to me, and I am joined to you. You are clinging to me, and I am imparting life into you. It's a reciprocal relationship. So abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. That's true, isn't it? That's true. Obviously, it's so so obviously true. We don't even need to dwell on it. But if a if a grape vine branch becomes severed from the vine, it won't produce grapes. Agreed. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He's using that as an illustration. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. That's the point. That's the application of this analogy. And that's the one that we are looking at right now. And that's the one that we need to consider more carefully because the danger is that we will get so involved in techniques and programs and activities in our service for the Lord that things will go on without spiritual empowerment and we won't even miss it. That's that's the danger. And I'm afraid that there's a great deal of that condition, a great that's not the very good way grammatically to say it, but that there is a great spreading of that condition in the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ across our nation today. So, what are the results of abiding? We take this from the text itself. And the first one that we looked at last Sunday is Christ-likeness, where he tells us that if you abide in me, you'll bear much fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. He bears much fruit. And I likened that fruitfulness to Christ's likeness because that, in fact, is what it is. We can look at the fruit and inspect the different elements and say, well, it involves this and that. 
But what it really boils down to is we become more like Christ. And the this and the that we're looking at are characteristics of Christ. So we become more Christ-like. We bear much fruit. Number two, as a result of abiding in Christ, we experience answered prayer. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And a similar verse in verse 16, a similar statement in verse 16. That is telling us that as we abide in in Christ in such a way that it shapes our thinking, our desires, our attitudes, that it also empowers our prayers because now our prayers become Christ-like prayers. We're praying like Christ would pray. Now our prayers are becoming becoming favorable prayers because God is pleased with the requests which he is hearing because they are shaped by his word and they are in line with his will. When God's desires become our desires, when God's work becomes our concern, and we're, we're more involved in that and more concerned about the prosperity of his work than of our own material welfare, when the interests of Christ's kingdom become greatest in our lives, the greatest goal of our lives, the greatest, the greatest thing that consumes our thinking, that, that shapes our desires in this life, then what do you know? Surprise, surprise, surprise. Our prayers take on new power, and they receive many, many, many favorable answers. Because we're praying according to God's will. We, we sometimes see these statements in the Bible about answered prayer, and, and it has such a strong guarantee to it, and yet we have difficulty with that. Well, does that mean if I ask for a new Cadillac that God has promised to give it to me? If I ask for a vacation home, God has promised to give it to me? And this is the way a lot of people take these promises and misapply what is said in Scripture about these prayer promises. This is where some of the preachers we call health and wealth gospel preachers will lead us astray because they, they, they put everything on the physical dimension and everything on the self-centered dimension. God is interested in your health. God is interested in your wealth. God is interested in your welfare. So if you just have enough faith, you can pray for whatever you want, and God's going to give it to you. You're missing something. You're, you're missing the heart of it all. You're not only missing something, you're missing almost everything. You're misunderstanding the force that shapes the contents and desires of our prayers. And here it is. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it will be done for you. Before we can claim this promise of of certain, guaranteed answers to prayer, we must be sure that our desires have been shaped by 
our relationship with Christ and with the input of his word. When that is true, then the desires of our hearts are so so God-honoring that our prayers are answered by God. Because, as I've already said, our wills are aligned with his wills. Our desires are, are aligned with his desires. Our purposes, purpose in life is lined up with his purpose for us in this life. And we're asking things that Christ would ask for if he were asking them. We are so, so in tune with him, so much abiding in him, so joined to him that and and he and, and he and us is is all is mentioned here we are in him and he in us and he is so much in us that our thinking our desires our whole purpose for living is all bound up in Christ and when you when you pray prayers that are shaped in that way how can they fail to be answered were the prayers of Jesus Christ himself not answered by the father of course they were because they were perfectly in line with the Father's will. I and the Father are one. And that, of course, involves more than simply an alignment of their wills. It has to do with the very essence of Christ as eternal deity. I and the Father are one. But it certainly does not exclude this matter of Christ's desires being the Father's desires. They were in perfect alignment And because his will was the Father's will, when he prayed, his prayers were answered every time. Bang, 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 bang. He could could step up to the tomb of Lazarus and lift his eyes to the Father and say, Father, I know that you hear me always, but for the sake of those who are standing by, that they may, may hear me, I ask you to hear my prayer. And then he cries out, Lazarus, come forth, and Lazarus is raised from the dead. Amazing, shocking, astounding. Why can't I have answers to prayer like that? Well, this tells us why. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. So Christ-likeness is a result of abiding in Christ. Answered prayer is a result of abiding in Christ. What else? Number three, assurance of salvation. Moving on to verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So, listen to this now, so you will be my disciples. So you will, and we might accurately translate this, so you will prove to be my disciples. So you will manifest yourself to be my disciples. So it will be evident to others and to yourself that you are one of my disciples. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and in doing so, it will become very, very evident that you are one of my disciples. And of course, that evidence spreads beyond yourself, but it very much involves yourself Sometimes people are all wrapped up in this question and concern. Have I been saved or not? Am I a child of God or not? How do I know? Where do I find assurance of salvation? And the answer to that question is is a complex answer because there are a lot of different ways of approaching 
that question and finding a biblical answer to it, but here is one of the most significant approaches, and that is, you know you are a child of God when you are demonstrating, with, without question, the characteristics of discipleship. A disciple is a follower of Christ. A disciple is a learner of Christ. He learns he he learns the words that Christ has spoken and he he imbibes them into his life. A disciple is an imitator of Christ. A discipler is a is a uh, progenitor of Christ. He is he is speaking to others about making them disciples of Christ. That's what a disciple is. You can take the word Christ away and and define disciple a little more broadly. A disciple is one who follows his master, whoever that may be. A disciple is one who learns from his master, whoever that may be, whatever that teacher may be, that rabbi. A disciple is one who imitates his master. He tries to become as much like his master, the one he has chosen to become a disciple of, as is possible. A disciple is one who spreads the message of his master. He becomes an extension of his master in expounding the message that the master has spoken to him and has been helpful to him, and he spreads that to others. Now, all of these are characteristics of discipleship, and when you understand that in terms of Christ, this is what a disciple of Christ is and does, and then the question is, do you find those characteristics in yourself? And if you do, then you know you're a child of God. There's assurance of salvation. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and in this way it will be manifested that you are my disciple. So assurance of salvation is a result of abiding. Now I'm no doubt talking to some who are wrestling with the question of assurance of salvation. And most people I've discovered in my experience over the years who are wrestling with that question are looking at the wrong things. Things like, did I say the right words when I prayed and asked Jesus to save me? Was I saved at this time when I prayed to be saved or at this time when I prayed to be saved? And how can I know? If I can't know for sure the exact time and place, am I truly a Christian? Because many people have been mistaught. I've heard preachers say, if you can't point to the exact time and place where God saved you, then you're not saved. You need to know that time and place. Where do you find that in the Bible? It's a, it's a, um, what should I say? It's a, it's kind of a logical extension of what people imagine ought to be true. Something so significant, something so momentous as having your whole life changed by the new birth certainly is something that you ought to be aware of and can pinpoint the time and the place. But the truth of the matter is, number one, the Bible never tells us that we must know the time and place and certainly doesn't, doesn't link that to the question of assurance. And number two, for most of the Christians in the Bible that we know anything about their conversion, we aren't even told the time and the place because that's not what's important. 
There are a few rare exceptions to that, but they are, they are the exceptions, not the rule. Paul on the Damascus Road could point to his Damascus Road experience and say, that's when, when and where I was saved. And obviously, there are others in the Bible that can point to something similar. The Philippian jailer could certainly point to that momentous night in his life when the prison doors were opened by the earthquake, and yet nobody escaped, and he fell on his face and cried out, What must I do to be saved? And was told, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And he did and was saved. He could point to the time and the place. I'm not saying that nobody can. I'm just saying that the Bible doesn't tell us that this is something that we should know and has any huge significance in in the question of assurance, whether we've truly been saved or not. And the majority of people that the Bible presents to us as having been saved, there is no record of when they were saved. So we've got to be more biblical about this whole question. We have to remember what Jesus said in John chapter 3 to Nicodemus. The Holy Spirit is in some ways like the blowing of the wind. When it blows, you know it's blowing, but you don't know where it came from and where it goes, and so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. You're not going to be able to always pinpoint it. And since it is a new birth, maybe it would be more helpful for us to think of it in terms of the physical birth. When someone is born into this world, there is a time and a place. We can pinpoint it. It generally is on the birth certificate. The exact minute is often recorded. I don't think it's always <laughs> accurately recorded. Sometimes it's a it's a pretty close estimate. But generally, a birth certificate will say so-and-so was born on this date, calendar date, January 14, 2023, or whatever, at 8.03 p.m. That's pretty definite. There was definitely a time and a place. But question, the baby is born. Is the baby aware of its birth? No. The baby grows. It's a year old. It's two years old. Is it aware of its birth and the time and place of its birth? No. The baby continues to grow and becomes old enough to understand these things, to understand the significance of birthdays. We celebrate my birthday, and I like birthdays because of the celebration, the parties, the cake, the candles, the gifts. But if you ask that four, five, six-year-old child, eight, ten, twelve-year-old child, on up, even to adulthood and a mature individual, if you ask them, do you remember the time and the place where you were born? The answer is every time going to be no. I don't remember. Why would you even ask such a foolish question? Nobody remembers that. I know where and when it was because somebody told me. My my parents gave me that information. I myself know the city that I was born in and the hospital that I was born in. And I know the um, the date and the time of day when I was born, but I have no recollection of that whatsoever. I know there was a time and a place. My my physical life, my existence, is testimony to the fact that there was a time and a place, but I have no conscious recollection of exactly when that was. Bingo! Now transfer that to the new birth. The The evidence of new life, of spiritual life, 
can only be explained because there was a new birth. That's the only thing that it can explain what has, what has happened here, what has developed here, what is evident here. This reality, this presence of a new creature in Christ Jesus is evidence that there was a time when this person was born again. But can that person know for certainty exactly when that happened? No. In most cases, no. And most Christians that I'm aware of have often wondered, was I saved at this point or was I saved at that point? Was I saved? Some people think it's they, they really um, almost bristle if you question them about this at all. I know I was saved at a certain, certain time and place. Well, I hope so. I mean, it really, it really doesn't matter, to be honest with you, to, to hold on to it so tightly and insist that that particular time and place was the time and place is a rather immature approach because that's not what's important. What's important the evidence, the evidence that a birth has taken place, the evidence of spiritual birth, in other words, spiritual fruit, Christ-likeness, abiding in Christ, discipleship, evidences that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. Don't you realize that that doesn't happen naturally? It can only happen supernaturally. Nobody becomes a disciple of Christ by natural processes. People only become disciples of Christ by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. The new birth that brings life out of death and light out of darkness and all of the things that are involved in a conversion, the work of the Spirit of God that brings that about, and whenever that happens, there will also always, not sometimes, always be a continuing work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life, and the evidences of discipleship are going to become stronger and stronger and stronger as that person makes his way through life, because we are confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it. He will continue it. He will develop it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a, there's a process here that takes place and will not be fully consummated until Christ returns and raises our dead bodies from the grave, and we then will live forever in our glorified bodies, and that'll be the, the final aspect of our salvation. But there's a whole lot of other things that are taking place in here, and one of them is right here. The the discipleship. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will prove to be my disciples. So you will manifest yourself to be my disciples. So it will be evident to others, and should also be evident to you, that you are my disciple. And if you are a genuine, committed disciple of Jesus Christ, then you are a Christian. <laughs> then you have assurance of salvation. And if you are not a dedicated, committed disciple of Christ, or if that is not clear, then you ought to have some question about whether or not you have been saved. Doubts about salvation are not necessarily a bad thing. Lack of assurance of salvation is not the worst thing that can happen 
to you. It's often treated that way. Whoa, 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 Pull out. Stop everything. We've got to, we've got to give this person assurance. They're, they're doubting their salvation. How, how terrible is that? We've got to, got to get that solved. Well, we do want to see that solved, but biblically, not by driving a stake in the ground. I mean, literally, I've had people say that. Dry, go out, write, write a date on, on, on a piece of wood, a, a stake. Pray the prayer right now and go out and drive it in the ground and then go back and look at it. I've actually heard a preacher say that. Then you'll have assurance. You've been wrestling with this. You've prayed many times. You can't seem to nail it down. So do that. Drive a stake in the ground and then go back and look at that stake. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says abide in Christ and then look at the fruit, the spiritual fruit that the Holy Spirit is developing in your life. That'll bring you biblical assurance of salvation. Until next week, Greg Barkman saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace.